Well, isn't there something about Easter that draws the voice and the passion and the heart and the worship out of us? What a great, what a great, great day Easter is, the greatest of days. We read a little bit earlier from a passage in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, the section describing the events immediately following the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's remarkable when you read through the Gospels how much of the Gospel material is devoted to the last week of Jesus' life and how much of that material is devoted to the very last day of Jesus' life. Um, Just by comparison, I went to a couple of books I have at home. I have a biography of Winston Churchill at home, 959 pages long, of which four pages are devoted to the last week of his life. I'm reading a biography of Hitler right now, 969 pages long, 10 pages of that devoted to the last week of his life. But the Gospels are not just biographies. Little more than, uh, little more than a third of the gospel material is devoted to the last week of Jesus' life. But they're not the story of his life. They're not biographies. The gospels are gospels, which means good news. There's a proclamation. There is a declaration centered around Jesus Christ. And that's what the gospels are written for. And this good news concerning Jesus Christ does not just include, it actually culminates in the twin events of his death and his resurrection, the things that we are remembering and celebrating this weekend. And the gospel writers take great pains to record those two events, starting all four gospels, starting with the Last Supper, Jesus in the upper room with his disciples, uh, reinterpreting the Passover meal in the context of his own greater sacrifice for their sins and the greater deliverance of God's people than what the Passover celebrated, which was their deliverance from slavery. Around the Last Supper, Jesus talking about the fact that one of his very closest friends would that very night betray him. Another one of his very closest friends would deny three times that he even knew who Jesus was. From there, going to the Garden of Gethsemane and the Mount of Olives, where Jesus agonized in prayer, agonized with his father, basically saying, if there is any way out of this, if there is any other way to deliver your people than me suffering and dying for them, let's do it that way. But whatever your will is for me, that's what I will do. Profoundly anguishing moment for Jesus while his friends slept just a few feet away. Then Judas comes with the guards, betrays him with a kiss. Jesus is arrested, bound, brought to the high priest's place where the religious leaders of the people, the Sanhedrin, are gathered together in the middle of the night, highly unusual, to try Jesus. And if not outright illegal, the trial was certainly a kangaroo court. They had arranged for false witnesses to come, and those witnesses couldn't even make their testimony agree. So at the end of the day, they had nothing to condemn Jesus with until Jesus handed them what they needed. He said to him, are you the son of the blessed one? And he said, I am. And I'll tell you something more. You will see the son of man coming in the clouds of glory. Finally, they had what they needed, given to them by Jesus. He was so in control the whole night. So now they have the charge of blasphemy and accordingly condemn him to death. But they're not allowed to execute anybody. They need Roman authority. So, well, Pilate doesn't give a fig for 
the religious laws, what can they do? Well, they bring Jesus to Pilate and bring that aspect of the role of Messiah, which is kingship. They bring that to Pilate and say, this man claims to be the king of the Jews and he's stirring up trouble everywhere. Pilate says, I don't, I don't find any fault with this man. Why don't I just beat him up for you and let him go? So Pilate has him whipped, a scourge, the flesh torn from his back, brings Jesus back out to the crowd and says, are you satisfied? Now, can I let him go? And they say, crucify him. And more than that, I don't know if you ever noticed this, they, the Jews are condemning Jesus to death on the charge of blasphemy. And then they themselves come very close to the line, if they don't stand across the line, and say to Pilate, we don't have any king but Caesar. I mean, the heart of the Jewish declaration was that God is our king. We don't have any other king but God. But they were even willing to compromise their central tenet to get Jesus crucified. We don't have any king but Caesar. Finally, Pilate says, all right, crucify him. Pilate hands him over. Jesus is beaten further, led out towards the cross. On the way, Simon of Cyrene comes and is forced to carry Jesus' cross because Jesus has been so weakened by what has happened to him thus far. He stumbles. So they put the cross in Simon of Cyrene. They go out to the hill of Calgary, Calvary, excuse me, and crucify him. And with a criminal on one side, a criminal on the other side, uh, the women that were following Jesus were there that day, had come as far as the cross to witness what was going on. All of these events, all of these events, the gospel writers record very carefully and take great pains because the arrest, the betrayal, the arrest, the trial, the suffering, the condemnation, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was so central to what it was that they were trying to communicate. A little bit later, the Apostle Paul would talk in defense of his own ministry about the fact that there were these super apostles in the church that were great speakers and doing all these wonderful things. And Paul said, you know what? As for me, I preach Christ crucified. That's what I do. And when I was with you, I resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The reality of the suffering and death of Jesus Christ, absolutely central to the gospel accounts. And Jesus dies on the cross is taken down, laid in a tomb, a borrowed tomb, not even his own. And then there's a day of silence. There's the Saturday. The gospel writers leave us on Friday with Jesus' burial. They pick up on Sunday morning, leaving almost entirely the in-between day unaddressed, except to say, as Luke does, that the women, once they saw where Jesus was laid, went home to prepare some ointment to anoint him with in his death, but then waited on the Saturday because it was the Sabbath day, a day for them to rest. And that's all the treatment given that day. And then we read the Sunday, this morning, that the women rose early. As soon as the sun showed its face over the horizon, the women got up, took the ointments and the spices that they had prepared, went to the tomb, Wondering on the way, who's going to roll this stone away, this massive stone? When Jesus was laid in the tomb, the way that they did tombs in those days is they had a bit of a, a trench on a downward slope toward the door. And they would cut out this huge stone disc and they could roll it down fairly easily in front of the door. But to roll it out of the way, up again, 
Well, I mean, who could do that? It would take several very, very, very strong men to do that. And here come the women. Who's going to roll the stone away? And then they get there, and the stone is already rolled away. Now, we, from our, our perspective on this side of Easter, think, what a great thing. You know what the women were thinking the first? Their first thought was, what, what has happened? The tomb's been desecrated. Maybe somebody's stolen Jesus. I mean, imagine, imagine laying somebody to rest, going to the, the funeral and the graveside of somebody that you dearly love, and then returning the next day to lay flowers, and you find that the hole is empty, the casket is there, and it's open. I mean, what, is, what does that do to your heart, right? You, you, it's gut-wrenching. You're afraid. That's what the women first felt. And on approaching the tomb and looking inside, what they see are a couple of angels, dazzlingly bright, and the angel actually rebukes them, says, what are you, what are you doing here? Why are you looking for Jesus at the cemetery? Well, um, he was buried here. We saw him buried here two days ago. That's why we're here. Angel says, no, why are you looking for Jesus, the living one, in the place of the dead? Don't you remember three times he told you that he would be handed over to sinful men and would be killed and then three days later would rise again? Don't you remember that? Well, when they heard the angel say that, then they remembered. But nobody was expecting an empty tomb. On Easter Sunday, the disciples were nowhere to be found. The women come, the disciples, they're holed up in the upper room, still afraid two days later. Nobody remembered, nobody took Jesus at his word that three days later he would rise from the dead. It took the declaration of the angels to make the women say, that's right, I remember that. Then they run and they tell the apostles, who you think, founders of the church, the religious elite, you think, would have gotten it. But what, are the, what does Luke tell us that the disciples thought? They didn't, believe that, they didn't believe it because they thought it was nonsense. It seemed to them an idle tale. The women come back. We saw an angel at the tomb. Jesus is risen. And the disciples say, you need some sleep. You're, you're out of your minds. You're grieving too hard. They didn't believe it. But Peter and John, at least out of curiosity, went to see, discovered that the tomb was empty, and Peter walks away shaking his head, wondering what has happened. He doesn't get it. The gospel writers considered the death and the resurrection of Jesus of such profound importance that they didn't concern themselves with telling the story of Jesus' life we know very, very little of what Jesus said and did, even in three years. You read the Gospels, it's a fairly select set of episodes that are recorded for us. No 1,000-page biography here. And as I read this passage in preparation for today, I asked myself the question that I always do when I'm preparing a text. Why is this here? Why, why did Luke include these details? Why did Luke write this account of the resurrection? You notice that none of the gospel writers actually record the resurrection itself, right? Nobody says it was late at night on Saturday, it was dark, 
Suddenly Jesus emerged from the tomb. There was an earthquake and an angel. You don't see that. We, we see Jesus being put in the tomb. The next thing we see is he's out of the tomb. And we don't know what happened in between, except that somehow Jesus is risen and he's not there anymore. Why did Luke include this account of the post-resurrection that very first morning? In the very beginning of Luke's gospel, we see why. We see Luke's agenda. He's writing for his friend Theophilus, and this is how he begins this gospel. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me, Luke, also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. In other words, all these people were trying to remember the things that Jesus said and did, trying to pull together kind of from the memories of the apostles and, and compile a narrative. And Luke says, you know, I've been keeping track of this. I've researched this pretty carefully now for some time, so I thought I would try to write it down kind of in meaningful form for you, Theophilus that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Luke writes for his friend an orderly account, an historically researched account of the gospel, the life and ministry of Jesus, and his death and his resurrection, so that Theophilus, who will read this, can have certainty concerning the things that he's been taught. Now, first of all, notice Luke's concern for historical accuracy. He's researched it. He wants to set it down in orderly, true account. Luke had had access to the disciples, probably had access to Mary, because Mary's fingerprints are all over the birth narrative in Luke. So you have these accounts that he's researched from the eyewitnesses. Okay, he's, he's researched it pretty carefully. This is a historically credible, reliable account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And those who suggest the resurrection never happened, I don't, I don't think have any plausible alternative. Just really quickly here. Did the disciples steal the body? Some say they did. Well, they didn't have the reason to steal it, nor the courage to steal it. Remember, they were afraid of the guards. They fled earlier from the guards. They were holed up in fear. And they weren't expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. They, weren't, they, you know, they were, didn't want to steal the body and then tell people Jesus rose from the dead. Resurrection was not even on their grid. And they were afraid. Maybe Jesus didn't die while the Romans were professional killers. Did they go to the wrong tomb and make a mistake? Well, Luke makes a point of saying in chapter 23 that the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. They knew where he was. Was it a made-up story? Some suggest that the, the Gospels are written as 100 years or more after the events that they record and that there was lots of legendary material that was included. Well, if, if the story was essentially made up, then you have two things. One is that the disciples, tradition tells us, ended up dying for something that they knew wasn't true. And I don't know too many people who are willing to do that. Certainly not a group of 12 who would. But then the story itself is all these marks of authenticity that all the gospel, all four gospels tell us that the women were the first witnesses to the resurrection. And in that culture at that time, if you wanted to make a story that would be 
believe, that would be regarded as factual, that would stand up as legal testimony, you wouldn't have the women as witnesses. You would have the apostles. You would have something else. But all four gospels say that the women were there first, and that's a mark that it's authentic. You have this description of the disciples as being pretty slow-hearted and thick-headed. If they're making up a story to say, you know, to lay the foundation for the church, which was built in the foundation of the apostles, they would have made the apostles look a lot better than they did. Um, Luke tells us that in verse 34 that the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. And 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that the Lord appeared to Simon. And we don't have any record of that appearance. And you would think that if the church was making this up early in their history, they would have included the Lord appearing to Simon Peter, who was the leader of the church. But there's none of that. So all these, all these things let us know that this is a true, accurate, that what we read is what really happened, not embellished at all. And Luke, the reliable historian sets this down for us as a reliable account. Jesus really did rise from the dead. And Luke takes such pains to record what he records, takes such pains to be reliable in his account of the gospel and ministry of Jesus and death and resurrection, so that Theophilus can have certainty concerning the things that he has been taught. So the question, what has Theophilus been taught? If you read the book of Acts, this ministry of, of the church from the resurrection, from the ascension onward, you read what the Christians universally proclaimed. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 3, and 4, and 5, and 13. Every time they have the opportunity to speak of Jesus publicly, they keep saying the same things. And this is what Theophilus would have been taught. And what it boils down to is two very simple things. One, that Jesus of Nazareth, who died and was risen, is the Son of God. And that you can have forgiveness of sins in his name. Everything else is linked to those two things. That Jesus is the Son of God and there is forgiveness in the name or in the person of Jesus Christ. That is what Theophilus has been taught. That's what the early Christians have been taught. That's what the Christians today proclaim and declare. And Luke writes down what he writes down in his gospel so that those who read it can have certainty concerning those two things. And incidentally, John wrote his gospel for the very same reason. John chapter 20, he says, you know, I could have written all, Jesus did so many more things than what I've written here. And if I wrote them all down, you'd have a set of 25 volumes. But I've written down these things, basically. I'm paraphrasing. But John says, I've written down these things so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing that, you may have life in his name. And the wages of sin is death. The Bible talks about sin and its judgment and separation from God in terms of death and forgiveness and restoration to God in terms of not just life, but fullness of life. And John says, I'm writing this down so that you can believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing, you can have your sins taken care of and you may have life. That's why John wrote. That's why Luke wrote. I think that's why Mark wrote. I think that's why Matthew wrote. The resurrection 
has always been central to the Christian witness concerning Jesus Christ, the Son of God, concerning the forgiveness of sins. In other words, no resurrection, no Christianity. It's that simple. No resurrection, no Christianity. Paul said that in 1 Corinthians as well. He says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, our faith is futile, you're still in your sins, we're condemned as liars because we've said about God that he raised Jesus from the dead, and if he didn't, then we've lied about God. No resurrection, there is no Christianity. It really is that simple. Jesus is the Son of God. Romans chapter 1 verse 4 says of Jesus that he was declared with power to be the Son of God by the Spirit of holiness and by his resurrection from the dead. That it was in the resurrection from the dead that Jesus is declared to be the Son of God. All through Jesus' life and ministry, the three years that we have in the Gospels, Jesus kept making both explicit and implicit claims concerning his relationship to God, that there was a shared divinity. Jesus talked about pre-existence. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus used the words I am a lot in reference to himself. I am was God's name, the great I am. Jesus took upon himself things that only God was allowed to do. Forgive sins, give life to people, uh, judge the human race for their sins. At one point, Jesus' enemies actually picked up stones to stone him. And the reason they gave for it is because they understood that the way that Jesus talking, was talking, he was claiming to be the Son of God. Jesus said, the Father and I are one. He said, if you see me, you've seen the Father. All these things that Jesus said and did indicated his claim to be, in a unique way, the divine, eternal Son of God. And then he died. And if he had stayed dead, we wouldn't have any reason to take what he said seriously. But God raised him from the dead. This is God's vindication of the life and work of Jesus. This is God's declaration that all the things that Jesus had said and did had the Father's stamp of approval. So when Jesus said, I and the Father are one, God says, he's right. And I will vindicate him by raising him from the dead. The resurrection testifies to us that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. Jesus really did rise from the dead, and Jesus really is the Son of God. And in Jesus, there is forgiveness of sins. Yesterday, uh, we came here to the church and we walked through the stations of the cross, kind of some of the episodes, the scenes that made up Jesus' walk from the Last Supper to his death on the cross. And as we were walking through the building, Kara, my wife, said to our kids, what does sin do to us? And the kids couldn't articulate it. What does sin do to us? Well, it does a couple of things, and I'll tell you what they are in just a second. But do you remember the story of how sin first entered the world, right? Adam and Eve, created for a perfect relationship with God and with each other. And because God loved them and wanted their love for him. Love, of course, is not instinctual. Love is chosen. 
Robots don't love anybody. You've got to choose to love. And so God gave them an opportunity, Adam and Eve, to choose to trust, to choose to love, to choose to live under his good lordship. And he said, you know what? This whole garden, you can eat anything you want, but just this one tree, don't eat this one tree. Trust me, if you eat it, bad things will happen. And then the serpent came and said, you cannot believe what God is telling you. He is holding out on you. He just doesn't want you to eat it because you'll end up being more like him and he doesn't want that. And so Adam and Eve chose not to trust or to believe the word of God. And with that lack of trust, you know that, right? Relationships are built on trust. With that lack of trust, the relationship is broken. They disobeyed. They ate the fruit. What happened when they ate the fruit? What was the result of that act of disobedience? What does sin do to us? It has two things. Subjectively, in terms of our own experience, it, it ruins our relationship with God. It separates us from him. It estranges us from him. There's now a chasm. There is hostility. There is fear. We're separated from God. We are not close relationally to God anymore. The second thing that sin, that sin does objectively is it puts us in a position of guilt and judgment and wrath and punishment. It means that, that we have done what is wrong. Adam and Eve did what was wrong. We, when we choose to sin, choose to do what is wrong, and that makes us guilty. And where there is guilt, the only remedy for that is Punishment, consequence. If I drive too fast, I get a ticket. If I kill somebody, I go to jail or get executed. There is punishment. That is deserved punishment. So we are separated from God by our sin. We also stand in the place of wrath and of judgment. That's what sin does to us. Jesus came to do two things. To reconcile us to God and to earn to obtain for us our forgiveness. He was separated from God in our place. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced what sin does. And he also took the punishment of sin on his shoulders. That's what his death, that's what his death was. The, the crown of thorns, a nail in his hands and his feet, the whip on his back, the cross chafing his back, the spear in his side was punishment. The punishment that we deserve, the punishment that I deserve. For my sins on Friday, when I went through the day with a critical spirit and was angry and thought I knew better, the sins of yesterday when I got unnecessarily cranky with my kids and didn't speak life into them but spoke death. My sins of laziness and ignoring God and of lust, selfishness, of greed, all of these things and all of these things that you also carry with you, the punishment for those things Jesus took to the cross and he bore the punishment. Which means that we do not have to. God punishes every sin one time. Only once. And for my sins, I can say to God, 
one of two things. The punishment for my sins will either fall on me or fall on Jesus. If I choose to accept his sacrifice for me, God will not punish me for my sins. Do you understand what's happening on the cross? We call it substitutionary atonement. Christ dying in our place. And if I recognize that in the death of Christ is the punishment for my sins, I can respond to that and say, oh my God, thank you so much you gave your son for me. Jesus, thank you for dying for me. I turn to you again in right relationship. You are my Lord and I will live accordingly. Or I can say, I don't believe it or I choose to ignore it then I will be on the hook for my own sins. But in Jesus Christ, the church has always said there is forgiveness of sins. That's what Peter and Paul in the early church preached. That's what Luke wants Theophilus to have no uncertainty about. And the reason that it works, that Jesus is the Son of God and in him there is forgiveness of sins, there is forgiveness because Jesus is the Son of God. Because his life of infinite worth was given for me. And if the very eternal Son of God dies for my sins by the will of the Father, then I can know absolutely that my anger, my lust, my laziness, my greed, my selfishness, God does not hold those things against me anymore. Blessed is the man, the Psalms say, whose sin the Lord does not count against him. Just imagine Luke with his quill in his hand thinking of Theophilus and saying, oh, my friend, I want you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ who died for you, the Son of God, that you might be restored to God and be forgiven of your sin. And you know what? When we gather together on Easter Sunday, that is what we are declaring together. We're declaring it, we're celebrating it, we're singing about it, I'm preaching on it. This is what we respond to in our hearts. This is what we want everyone in the building to know, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for our sins, died as the Son of God, rose again as the Son of God for our justification that we might be made right with God. And it's because he rose from the dead that we know that all of this is for real, the cross. If you're at the Good Friday service on Friday, the speaker spent a fair amount of his time reminding us that Friday was a good Friday. Because Jesus, the Son of God, died, died for our sins. And I want you to know this morning that the Son of God gave himself for you. And I want you to have certainty that your sins can be forgiven. Most of you know that. Some of you this morning probably don't. As we were praying this morning, somebody said, I pray that everyone in the building will know you, Jesus. That's my prayer too. If you would like to know that your sins are forgiven and that you can be relationally restored to God, I want you to come and see me when this service is done. We'll need to talk. Or talk with somebody that you know, that you trust, that already knows that, and you can talk and pray with them.
But please do not leave here without taking some sort of forward step in understanding that truth. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let me pray. Jesus, Son of God, we delight in you on this day. We recognize that our forgiveness, our holiness, our son and daughtership of God is rooted in your own sonship and the giving of your life for us, but also in your rising from the dead and living now eternally. We bless you. And I pray that we have seen you this morning, that you've been pleased with what we have offered you, what has gone on in our hearts and what has come from our mouths. Jesus Christ, Son of God, we worship you. Our sacrifice, our risen Lord, the one who leads us back to the Father. You are worthy of the very best and highest praise we can give you. We pray these things and we offer this whole morning to you in your own beautiful, precious name. Amen.